Hope is walking through Paul's letter to the church in Philippi, section by section, verse by verse, chapter by chapter. And so last week we studied his greeting, the first two verses of this letter. And this morning we'll read what follows, which is his thanksgiving. Now here is an interesting question. As you may or may not know, this letter was written by Paul in prison. So here's the interesting question. What makes Paul grateful while in prison awaiting his trial and execution? Well, let's read together to find out, starting in verse 3. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you, all making my prayer with joy. Because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. It is right for me to feel this way about you all, because I hold you in my heart. For you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness, how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment. So that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ. Filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of of God. This is the word of God. Let me pray for us now. Lord, would the words of my mouth and would the meditation of all of our hearts together be pleasing and acceptable to you, our rock and our redeemer. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. It's fun to have a full house this morning, but if I'm honest, I probably get a little too excited when I see a full house. You see, pastors have an unhealthy relationship with crowds, especially church crowds. Uh, And for me, this is for a couple of reasons. First, my faith was nurtured in a college ministry that averaged 800 students at their weekly gathering. And so big crowds were like adrenaline to my soul and still are today. But secondly, the reason is this. Pastors are sinners. Saved by grace. And too often, if we're not resting in Jesus alone, we try and find validation from what I call ministry measurables. The easy surface things in the life of ministry that you can look to for validation and salvation. And so I can celebrate the wrong things. It's a good question to ask yourselves. Are we as a church celebrating the right things? Maybe we put too much stock in crowds. Maybe we get a little too excited about process. Things like particularization or a church building or staff, or something else. All things I think we can and ought to celebrate. 
But I think we could, it's very possible, miss something if that's all we celebrate. In verses 3 and 4 of the passage that we just heard in this letter that Paul wrote to a church that met in a house, Lydia's house most likely, we get a peek into what excites Paul when he thinks about the church. What does he celebrate when he thinks and prays over this church? The controlling verb of this entire section is in verse 3, I thank Eucharisteo, I thank, I thank the Lord for. Some of you might think that Paul is a sort of gruff guy, all head and no heart. But what I see when I read this Thanksgiving is I see an incredibly tender and vulnerable and emotive pastor. Words like joy and thanksgiving and grace. Pervade this text. And so what I think we get, and this is a gift to us, especially us, is we get a unique picture, a window into what the Apostle Paul, and therefore what God wants us to celebrate and pray for at this church. And not just us, but the church across America. And not just the church across America, the church across the world. What does Paul celebrate? Well, Paul strings together, if you listened along as I read it, a lot of things. He can ramble. Amen? Paul can ramble. Okay? But it's divinely inspired ramblings. And if you helicopter out, I think you can see two major groupings emerge from this Thanksgiving. The first is gospel and the second is growth. Paul celebrates that the Philippian church has a gospel culture. And Paul celebrates and prays for this Philippian church that they would have a culture of growth. Let's look at it both. Paul celebrates that the Philippian house church has a gospel culture. And so we must celebrate too the gospel in this community. He says in verse 3, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you. Okay, why is he thankful? Always in every prayer of mine for you, all making my prayer for you all, making my prayer with joy. Why? Because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And I'm sure of this, he goes on, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. He then justifies this thought by saying this. It is right for me to feel this way about you. Why? Because I hold you in my heart for you are all what? Partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of what? Of the gospel. For God is my witness, he says, how I yearn for you with all the affection of Christ Jesus, this is a gospel culture that he is celebrating. How so? Well, first of all, a gospel culture embraces the gospel. A gospel culture does not simply passively receive the gospel message as if it were something to mentally assent to. There is a holistic embrace in this community of the good news of Jesus Christ, which is what gospel means. There's an embrace of it. 
Gospel is simply a news report of something that happened outside of you, praise God. When God sent His Son Jesus to live for us, and then to die for our sins, and to be raised on the third day, so that we might not taste death or hell. This news event happened. And what we see here in this church is that they don't simply say, great, sign me up. I believe in that news event. They embrace it with all that they are. Paul says they are partners in it, using the word koinonia or fellowship. Paul says they are partakers in it, which was a business term. If you were an entrepreneur in the ancient culture, you had a partaker with you. And so you risked your life on whatever it is that you are endeavoring to do in the marketplace. There is an embrace, a costly, even a risky embrace of the gospel in this community. That Paul thanks the Lord for. They don't just confess the good news. They embrace it through their prayers. If you follow down in verse 11. He is encouraged by the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ that he sees in their life. They embrace the gospel with their whole life. They embrace the gospel with their manner of their life. If you go down to verse 27, you see the manner of their life on display as well. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel, so that whether I come to see you or am absent, I may hear you that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. A few verses later, we learn that they embrace the gospel with their suffering. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in Him, but also suffer for His sake. This is an embracing of the gospel, not a mere mental agreement with it. A gospel culture does that. A gospel culture also emphasizes God's work and not their own. In the gospel culture, the emphasis is not on how hard we work, but the work of God in our life and in our church. The emphasis in a gospel culture is not our commitment to God, but God's commitment to His people. As we saw, the Philippian church is committed to the Lord. They are. That's why he's thanking the Lord about it. But notice what Paul's emphasis is on verse 6. I am sure of this. This is what I'm sure of, Paul says, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. When Jesus returns and we see him face to face, God is at work from the very beginning to the very end. A church that has a gospel culture will always emphasize God's work in the equation. That's where they lean on. That's where their weight is. God's work from beginning to end. One of my favorite authors and writers and thinkers is Andy Crouch. He was recently asked what he is learning about life and what it is to follow Jesus. And this was his short answer. He says, when I was younger, Jesus's words, apart from me, you can do nothing. As he says in the Gospel of John. 
He says those words, apart from me, you can do nothing. As a younger man, seemed like a grand and totally inaccessible spiritual truth. He goes on, these days, it seems like a completely concrete and economical description of reality. I love this because Andy Crouch is hard at work. He's writing books. He's speaking to hard issues in our culture. Everything you think when you see this man is you see someone who is hard at work producing good things. But notice what happens when the gospel does its work. Humility. Apart from God, I can do nothing. Where is Andy's emphasis? Like Paul, it's on God's work. It's on God's work, not ours. And the spiritual principle behind this is that the more we lean on on God and His work, the more we somehow are freed up to serve Him with all of our effort. Because we're not earning His love in the gospel. And so we are free. We are as free as anybody in this world. Which is good news. So, the gospel culture emphasizes God's work as well as embodying the gospel One other thing I see in this text, they experience, a gospel culture experiences and enjoys fellowship. Here's the logic. If the gospel is the good news of Jesus, of God uniting us to Jesus and His benefits, this means two things. That we have fellowship with God and fellowship with all of God's people. Not in theory. (laughs) which is how we use that word all the time. I have fellowship with God. And what we mean by that is, well, my sin has been taken away. And so now uh, there's no longer strife and enmity between me and God. And we start thinking in theoretical terms. But what the scriptures describe when they use the word fellowship or koinonia is they describe a real, real, a real fellowship, a real union. And how dare we apply that to our personal relationships too. Oh, I have fellowship with that church down the street. No, we actually are united to them in a special way. That's the fellowship that we have. A gospel culture recognizes that and enjoys the fellowship and feels the fellowship that they have with God in Christ. This is why Paul can use intimate terms, the most intimate terms, to describe his relationships Uh, to the Philippians, even though he is hundreds of miles away in a Roman prison. He says in verse 5 that they have partnership with him or fellowship with him. Such an intimate word. And they, they are partakers of grace with him. He does not shy in that experience of fellowship and exalting in that. And then that's also why Paul can use intimate terms to describe his vertical relationship with God as well. I don't know if you notice this, but he actually says in verse 8 that he yearns for the, for the people in this house church with all the affection of Christ Jesus. Paul is saying he actually has the affections of Christ Jesus. Not that his affections are like the Lord's in this respect. (laughs) 
No, he says the same affection that Christ has. You remember our assurance of pardon today? How he sings over you? Paul's saying that that same affection is his. Not like his. It is his. How can he say that? Because Paul was just awash in the truth and the glory and the beauty and the grace and the gift that is union with Christ. It is an experienced fellowship with Jesus. And so it doesn't surprise me that as he rambles on, right, with his pen, just phrase after phrase after phrase after phrase, he just takes for granted that he is experiencing and enjoying fellowship with Jesus. It's amazing. I want us to have that culture too. This is why our mission at Hope is to extend the welcome of Jesus. If the gospel is the costly and surprising and loving welcome of Jesus, then a gospel culture is a church that actively welcomes outsiders in costly ways, surprising ways, and loving ways. I just love how my mentor from afar, who doesn't know it, Ray Ortland, puts it. I know his son. That puts me in a little bit of his orbit, I think. I just admire him so much. And he says this. He says, gospel doctrine creates gospel culture. Without the doctrines, the culture is fragile. And without the culture, the doctrines alone appear pointless. Let me say that again. Without the doctrines, the culture alone is fragile. Without the culture, the doctrines alone appear pointless. He goes on, but the New Testament binds doctrine and culture together. He he cites some examples. The doctrine of regeneration creates a culture of humility, Ephesians 2, verses 1 through 9. The doctrine of justification, which is God declaring us right with Him by grace, creates a culture of inclusion. Galatians 2, verses 11 through 16. The doctrine of reconciliation creates a culture of peace, Ephesians 2, verses 14 through 16. The doctrine of sanctification, where God is is growing us in the likeness of Jesus, creates a culture of life. Romans 6, 20 through 23. The doctrine of glorification, the idea that we will, in that day of Christ that Paul talks about in our text, we will see Him face to face and we will be like Him. That creates a culture of hope. I see this happening in our midst. But I am also challenged by Paul to celebrate this more, to have an eye for this more, to pray for this more, to thank God for this kind of stuff more and more and more. So we must indeed celebrate a gospel culture. The final verses, I think Paul is now focusing on growth. Paul may not celebrate crowds like most pastors like me, okay? But he does celebrate growth. It's evident because he prays for it starting in verse 9. 
It is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment so that you may approve what is excellent and be pure and blameless for the day of Christ. You know, Paul assumes that the people of God are living in a story that is going somewhere. When Jesus returns, it makes all things new. It makes straight all that is bent. And wipes away every tear. He assumes that we are all in this story going somewhere. And so his prayers are directed towards us in the middle of that story. And he wants us to grow. He wants us to grow. He wants us, verse 11, to be filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. If you want to pray for hope, print these verses off and put it in your Bible or put it on your mirror or put it in front of your speedometer Because this is a prayer for the right kind of growth that we want to see in our church. Growth worth celebrating. Worth thanking God for. What kind of growth is it? It's growth, first of all, in love. It's growth in love. Paul prays and celebrates growth in love. Verse 9. It's my prayer that your love may abound more and more. This is not just generic love, but it is first love for God and love for neighbor. It is second, a love that abounds. Paul prays that our love would abound more and more. This word means overflowing boundaries. The boundaries that we set for our capacity to love God and to do helpful acts for others, our neighbors, our spouses, our children, our enemies. We set boundaries. Paul prays that our love would go beyond those boundaries. It's an abounding love. Paul sees no end in our ability to love God and love neighbor. It will grow for eternity. It is a relational love. Paul prays that our love would be relational, which is what knowledge means. When he says... More and more in verse 9 with knowledge, he is qualifying their love as a knowledgeable love. Now, the first word that we think of when we hear the word knowledgeable is we think theoretical knowledge, something you would read in a book and then spit out on a scantron. That's how we understand knowledge, right? But the way that the Bible uses knowledge is a much more intimate way. Knowledge is always relational in the scriptures such that it can even be described as the sexual act. Knowledge is relational. So he wants our love to be relational. And then it's an earthy love. Paul prays that our love would be a love that is a discerning love. A discerning love. The word discernment means that our love has hands and feet, that it has tact. It's not just an ability to, to say or do a loving thing, but it's the ability to, to say or do a loving thing in the right way at the right time. That's how Paul prays for growth for his people. Are you praying for growth in the same way? For yourself, for your friends, for your loved ones, for your spouse, for this church. 
that our love would be to God and neighbor, that it would be abounding, that it would be relational, that we would fall in love with God, and that we would have a relational love with neighbor and enemy. And that it would be an earthy love, a word that has discern a love that has discernment. So Paul prays for and celebrates growth in love, but he also prays for and celebrates growth in godliness, which is the final verse in our section. He says, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. He wants us to be pure and blameless and righteous. Now, how does Paul envision that happening? Well, first of all, what's he doing? What's he doing right now? He's praying. So that's our first cue. The things like godliness happen through the means of prayer. But what I also see is that he prays that God would change their desires. In verse 10, that we might approve what is excellent. That word approve, that phrase prove what is excellent would have been used in the ancient context to test metal. And money. You are growing in your ability to approve what is actually valuable and what is actually not valuable. What is actually money and what is actually fake money. You're growing in your capacity to approve what is excellent. So what is Paul doing? He is praying that you all would have tastes and values that are constantly changing in accordance with. To God's will. Paul's praying that God would change their tastes. That Paul's praying that they would that God would change their desires. That's how we grow in purity. Paul wants us to have hearts that are alive to what is truly valuable. And that's why Paul later in this letter will say, I'd rather have Jesus than anything in this world. Because Paul has the capacity by God's grace to taste the difference between all that the world can offer and all that Christ brings us. And then secondly, he prays that God would make them fruitful, filled with the fruit of righteousness. The fruit of righteousness. Now, growth worth praying for, according to Paul's phrase here, is growth that comes from God. Notice, fruit is not something that we can force with willpower. It is something that God does through our union with Christ. Because, Paul says, even in this phrase, filled with the fruit of the righteousness that comes through what? Through willpower? That comes through effort? No, that comes through what? Through Jesus Christ. And that is why, by the way, it's to the glory and praise of God. Any growth in godliness, any growth in purity, any growth as a Christian comes ultimately through God. What we see is fruit of His work in our life. So notice, Paul does not get excited or thankful about superficial indicators like crowds. He prays with joy for growth in love and godliness. He prays that our church would be a gospel culture. Colin Marshall and Tony Payne, uh, they compare church ministry to a garden. And they write this. They say, quote, all Christian ministry is a mixture of trellis and vine. Who gardens? Anybody garden? It's a mixture of trellis 
and vine. The trellis, according to this analogy, is the organization and the structures of the church. The vine is the people. It's the people. The trellis is vital, otherwise the vine will sort of just wither away on the ground. But it is not the point. Too often I think we elevate the trellis above the vine. And we celebrate the trellis at the expense of the vine. And there's a lot of trellisy stuff going on, I hope. And it's good stuff. But let me ask you a serious question. Are we elevating that above the vine? Are we praying for trellisy things at the expense of the vine? I have a friend who has a small garden. Something I've admired when I hear about their small garden is how attentive it makes them to the smallest signs of life and therefore the smallest threats to life. And so my friend tends to the trellis but celebrates the vine. And I think that's a great posture for us in our stage of life. Tend to the trellis, celebrate and pray for the vine. Are we growing in love? Are we growing in grace-empowered godliness as a community? When was the last time you prayed for these things? For yourself, for your church, for your family? Sometimes I know, I know, trust me, I know. When we sit down to pray for our family, we just sort of like, uh, analysis paralysis, I don't know what to pray for. And so we just sort of mumble the Lord's Prayer and call it a day. If you want some specifics, just use this text for a while. Pray these things, not just for this church, but for your family. In your battle against sin and addiction, lying, lust, laziness, whatever it is, have you asked God to change your desires? Paul prays that our desires would change. Are we praying the same? As as the ancients in the church used to call it, there's an expulsive power of a new affection. And when we start to even this much desire Jesus more than sinning, that's when change happens. Are you praying for that? That that miracle would happen? In whatever area of addiction you face right now? Are you praying that the expulsive power of a new affection would take hold in your heart? That you would like Jesus a little bit more than whatever that sin is? That needs to happen. And it happens by prayer and it happens by grace, by gift. So I do think this is a timely passage for us. Uh, just in a few weeks, we'll, we'll become officially Hope Presbyterian Church. And so may we be a gospel culture. We don't just confess the gospel. We don't have the gospel in our statement of belief alone. But we are actually a culture that extends the gospel, that embraces the gospel, that enjoys the fellowship that comes from the gospel. And may we be a church that celebrates gospel growth, therefore. Not superficial growth. If buildings come, if growth in size comes. This text makes me wonder if we would even notice. Because our eyes are on the vine. 
our eyes are on the gospel. Let's pray together. Thank you, Lord, for this timely prayer from Paul, this thanksgiving that he gives. And Lord, would it, uh, would it be helpful to us as a church as we envision what it looks like to extend your welcome in this city? What, what it looks like to, to confess your gospel? Would we be a gospel culture? Would we be, by your grace, a culture that grows, that grows in love, that grows in godliness? Not for our own sake, but for your glory and for your praise. Lord, when we are praising you, we are most alive. We are most human when we are praising you. And that's how you've designed this. And so, Lord, do your work in this space. We ask it now in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.